Amen. Thank you, church. Go ahead and have a seat. Our ushers are going to be passing out note sheets and pencils and Bibles. Um, if you feel a little hindered because the smoke has been thrashing your throat and so you weren't able to sing the way you normally would like to sing, uh, don't be discouraged. The Lord God looks at the heart more diligently than he looks at the superficial things like how we sound. And, and I'm encouraged, I, I, am, I am very encouraged to know that, or at least I, I believe this is the case, when we get our new bodies and God gets rid of all the imperfections of who we are and all the limitations of our flesh, I think all of us are going to have beautiful singing voices. I'm, I'm convinced that the heavenly choir, you're going to be able to do and hit, hit notes you could never hit before. So we look forward uh, to that, that great promise that the Lord is going to redeem our flesh as well as our spirits. So if you've got your Bibles, go and open to Galatians chapter 3. Um, I'm going to warn you ahead of time a little bit. Went to a preaching conference this week. So uh, when a preacher gets back from a preaching conference, it's going to go a little long. I just want to let you know that right off the bat. I got to see Dr. Steve Lawson, who is an amazing, amazing preacher. If you have not listened to him preach and you're looking for something to uh, fill your commute or uh, to put in your earbuds when you're on your jog or working in the yard, Steve Lawson's a wonderful representation of the gospel. He, He preaches the truth. And he does it with conviction, and so uh, very grateful to have had that opportunity. Pastor Paul, as well as Pete Rapolas, we all went to Sacramento to see him for three days this past week. So thank you, church, for supporting your pastors in that and for giving us that opportunity to go and and, uh, see some really great preaching. I pray that it will filter in uh, to what you're hearing in your pulpit as well as we all are preaching uh, the same gospel of Christ's glory. Now, we have been focused on justification quite a bit in this last couple of months as we've been working our way verse by verse through the, the, um, the letter to the Galatian church, uh, rather to the churches in Galatia. And we wanted to take just a moment this morning to just kind of rapid fire, do a quick recap of what we've been learning because Paul has developed so many ideas that we might get lost in it all. And so in your note sheet, you've got a little section there that's going to give you just kind of a bullet point recap of what we've been learning. We have seen that the law that God gave to Israel through the prophet Moses it demands perfection. The law requires that people keep it perfectly. And that is something that Israel could not live up to. We too, as the New Testament church, even though we have Christ, we cannot perfectly keep the law as it is described in Moses. And so we've learned of the limitations of the law. The law was not given to us to save us. It was given to us to show us our difficult condition and to point to the solution to that difficult condition, that solution is Jesus himself. Secondly, the covenant that God made with Abraham came before the law. There are several different covenants in God's recorded scripture, and 430 years, roughly before Moses was given the law, Abraham was made some very clear and powerful promises. The fact that Abraham's covenant, we learned last week, the fact that it came after Abraham's covenant didn't mean that it replaced Abraham's covenant. It didn't mean that it voided out or nullified or even amended the covenant that God had made with Abraham. We are here to worship a God of promise and that God will always, always, without fail, keep his promises to us. So the Abrahamic covenant does not threaten, the, or the Mosaic covenant does not threaten the Abrahamic covenant. Thirdly, we've learned that the covenant that God made with Abraham put all of the responsibility of keeping that covenant, put it all on God himself. When God ratified that covenant, we saw in, in, uh, I believe it was Genesis chapter 
15 or chapter 17 where God uh, instructs Abraham to, to make an offering to him and to divide that offering into two parts. Abraham never passes through the two parts. That was a, a cultural symbol of the ratification of a promise. And instead, the, the picture of God, the flaming torch and the flaming pot, passed through those two pieces of the covenant. And in doing so, God showed that He would keep that covenant on our behalf. That those promises would not be depended on or hinging on our obedience or our performance in the, in the law, but rather God was going to make promises to us that He would keep by His power alone. What a relief that is, that we do not have to earn our place in God's kingdom. Fourthly, Abraham received the covenant promises on faith. And God accounted that faith to him as righteousness. He did not work to be approved by God. He did not meet certain criteria or qualify with any prerequisites to, to heavenly dwelling. Instead, he simply accepted God's plan and he moved forward, trusting the Lord and believing that he would do what he said he would do for Abraham. Fifthly, to be saved... We must do the same thing that Abraham did. As New Testament believers, we must trust that the promise of salvation that God has made in His Son, Jesus Christ, is not something we have to earn or be qualified for. Rather, we see that God has graciously given us this gift, that we can't do anything to earn it. We don't deserve it even today, though we have it, though we possess it, though it is ours. And so we simply do what Abraham did. We trust God's plan. We believe that it is enough. And we walk forward in faith following after the lead of our Savior. Sixth, in Christ, God fulfills the promises that He made to Abraham. In Jesus Christ, the promises of a progeny, the, pro the promises of a land, the promises that He would bless every nation came through the bloodline of Abraham, who before those promises had no children, had no descendants, but God gave him miraculously Isaac the son. And then that through that bloodline, Jesus Christ fulfills the promises of, that God made to Abraham in his life, in his death burial, in his resurrection. And some of those are not perfectly complete yet because we still have a new heavens and a new earth to enjoy, which will be the forever blessing of Abraham's kingdom. But we are, as God's people, as those who trust in that offspring of the promise in Jesus Christ, 7 says that we who are in Christ by faith benefit along with Israel from God's promises to Abraham. So we talked about that amazing truth that though we are not Israelite by birth, that he has adopted us into his family so that we can be just as much heirs, that we can enjoy the blessings of the fulfillment of the promises that God has made through Jesus Christ. What an amazing God we serve. And as we reflect upon God's generous plan for redemption, we see grace upon grace upon grace. It is truly his work that brings us, who are far away from God, who brings us near so that we can be joined to God in a right relationship. This distinct focus on God's work over our work, over our obedience, brings up a very good question, or it should, in our hearts and in our minds. And that question is, if justification is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone, is there any room left for the law? Has the Old Testament law and the Ten Commandments fulfilled its function? Can we now live as if the law no longer exists? If we cannot be saved by works, then what was the point of the law in the first place? 
These questions were no doubt on the minds of those Galatian Christians that Paul is writing this letter to, and it's definitely been on the the, the minds of the millions of people who have read these verses since Christ uh, came and gave his life for us. We will seek the answers to these questions this morning as we meditate on Galatians chapter 3, verses 19 through 20. So if you are there in your Bibles, I'm going to read this out loud for us, and we are trusting that the Lord is going to use what we study today to bless our hearts and to grow us in Christ. Verse 19. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions, until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. And it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everyone under sin, so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Paul begins in verse 19 by acknowledging that the law was added to the history of Israel. It wasn't there when Abraham was given his promises. It wasn't codified. It wasn't written out for us. But it was added later on. And it begs the question. It's not explicitly answered in our text this morning, but I think it's a fair question to ask. We need to remember who added that law. If the law was added to the timeline of Israel's history, who put it there? Who brought it to bear upon Israel? It was added by God, wasn't it? God was the one who brought the law in the first place. Man did not come up with it on his own. Now, I'm not saying that man doesn't try to come up with with laws of their own. Ever since we've had governments and history, man has been trying to devise law for himself. I would go so far as to say ever since we've had a, a parent and his child, there has been law, right? Man is constantly trying to figure out ways to regulate the behavior of man. But when we're talking about the law, we're talking specifically about the law of God that was given to us by God. Now, Paul is not lying. He has told us that that law is a curse. But it is not an unwelcomed intruder in the course of God's interaction with Abraham and his people. Sin itself was a poison introduced by the enemy, wasn't it? You remember back in the Garden of Eden? We have this idyllic place. We've got peace. We've got perfect fellowship between between Adam and Eve and God who created them. And then Satan, this enemy from outside, introduced into the Garden of Eden this idea of sinfulness. He polluted what was good. We must be careful not to think of the law in the same way. The law is not some wicked, twisted perversion that the enemy has brought in. God himself brought the law into his relationship with Israel, his covenant people. So it must play a role. It must be important to what God plans to do. The law is actually given to us as a just response to the rebelliousness and sinfulness of God's creation. We can, and we do at times, misuse God's law, don't we? We look at it the wrong way. We treat it the ways God's never intended us to treat it. But we must remember at all times that the law itself is not a bad thing. Every good and perfect gift comes down from the Father of lights in whom there is no changing or shadow of turning, says James. 
So if the law came from God, the law itself must be a good thing. So Jesus did not take on flesh and come to our earth to defeat the law. Jesus took on flesh and came to earth to defeat our sinful breaking of the law. Secondly, for what purpose was the law added? We see that it was added by God. Why? Why did He deliver it to us? If the promises He had already given to Abraham were good, then why did God bother making another covenant? Verse 19 says it as clearly as it can. It was added because of transgressions. Sin was reality in the fallen world. God commanded Noah at one point to build an ark. You remember this passage in Genesis chapter 6. And there's a description of the world and the type of world that 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 commandment was given into. It says in verse 5 of Genesis 6, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. That's not a pretty picture, is it? And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. Just five chapters earlier, God had been saying, Everything that he made was good. And within the scope of five chapters, man has so polluted the creation of God that he looks upon it with regret and his heart is grieved that he has made something that could be turning out so badly. Sin was damaging. And mankind needed to know the extent of the damage that comes when we rebel against our God. Murder was wrong before the law was written, wasn't it? Think about this. Way back in the beginning of your Bible, when Cain kills his brother Abel, his brother brings a sacrifice, he brings a sacrifice, God looks favorably upon Abel's, he doesn't accept Cain's sacrifice, and Cain, in jealousy, murders Abel. When God confronts him with this and says, what happened to your brother? Cain didn't say, doesn't matter what happened to my brother, there's no law yet, you can't hold me accountable for this. Wait until Moses comes along and then you can hold trial over people who murder, but no, there's no law right now. No, that's not how it went. God condemns Cain for his wicked act, even though there isn't a codified law yet. Murder has always been wrong. Lying has always been wrong. Adultery has always offended the heart of God. But the addition of the divine law, a defined and declared framework for Israel's conduct, gave a righteous pattern by which man can be held accountable for their sin. Here's a way to understand this. A man is experiencing some symptoms. Something is wrong in his body, and so he goes to the doctors. They run a bevy of tests. They examine his blood. They look at x-rays, PET scan, all, all, all nine yards. And then he's called a couple weeks later, and he's told to come back in. The man comes in, and he sits down in front of his doctor, and his doctor pulls up a chair, and he says... Here's the diagnosis. And he tells him what is wrong with him. It is not in that very moment that the man becomes sick, is it? He was sick long before the diagnosis. He experienced the repercussions of his sickness, though he could not define what was wrong in his body, long before he sat before that doctor and the doctor said, I'm sorry, sir, you have stage 4 cancer. The diagnosis simply described to him the reality of what he was facing. It showed him what he was up against. It didn't make him sick. It helped him understand his sickness. In the same way, the law does not make us sinners. 
It defines our sin and it gives us something to fight against. Just like a diagnosis tells me that, okay, I have cancer. What does that mean? That means I've got to start praying right now. That means I've got to seek my Lord. That means I've got to bring around me family and friends who can support me through this. This means I'm going to have to start doing chemotherapy. It means I'm going to have to start changing my diet. It means I'm going to have to start doing things to battle this sickness. So the law doesn't make us sinners, but rather the law describes our sin and defines the seriousness of it. Paul goes on to tell us the trouble, goes through the trouble of telling us the precise way that the law was added. How was the law added? It was added through an intermediary. Paul sees this, by the way, as, as further evidence of what we learned last week, that the law is not a bad thing, but it is inferior to the promise that God gave to Abraham. It's subordinate to that. Abraham's promise was not delivered by an angel. It was not handed to Abraham through a prophet. It was declared to Abraham by God himself, right? Directly, emphatically, God made him promises. And that covenant promise was ratified by the Lord God himself on his own terms. In contrast, the law was given via third-party interaction. There's a detachment there. Verses 19 and 20 break down this idea of the intermediary. It says, and it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now, an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Again, Paul is comparing the Abrahamic covenant, which has one messenger, to the Mosaic covenant, which has several different messengers. Is this intermediary the prophet Moses? In part, it is, but not in full. Moses brought the tablets down from Sinai. He recorded Leviticus and Deuteronomy by inspiration. But God's word sheds a little more light on this idea of the intermediaries. And he does it in the book of Hebrews in the New Testament. Look at Hebrews chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. This will be on the screen for you. Where the author of Hebrews writes, Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution. How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? Leave that verse up there for just a minute. Look at those verses again. For since the message declared by angels, who declares the message to us? Angels do. And which message are we talking about? We're talking about this message of the law. This message that says, if you break God's command, you will be held accountable for it that the wages of sin is death. This is the very message that was delivered to us by angels. Every transgression or disobedience receives a just retribution. That means that God is serious about this. He's not just going to brush our sins under the carpet and say, oh, let's just start again. He must punish sin. So this message of the law was given through several mediators. It was given through angels, divine revelation, delivered to Moses by God's messengers, it was given through prophets like Moses and then the men who followed after him, those who foretold the truths of God. The prophets weren't always telling the future. They were often telling the past that had been forgotten. Listen, Israel, God has already told you and covenanted with you. You are not to behave as the pagan behaves. You are not to worship false gods. If you do, there will be hardship. There will be repercussions. God will bring judgment upon the nation. So those prophets worked as intermediaries as well. And it was also governed through priests. 
another level of intermediaries as those Israelites would come and bring their sacrifices in the tabernacle at first and then later in the, in the temple. They would bring those sacrifices and a priest would consecrate the sacrifice. A priest would pray. A, a priest would lift up those offerings to the Lord. There was always something in between. Several layers. It was like the relationship that God had with man because of this law was like a third-person acquaintanceship. It was like almost having a friend that you had to go through another friend to, to spend time with that person. It is inferior, therefore, to the covenant that God made with Abram, a covenant that was made directly. So as that scripture in Hebrews tells us, the law proved to be accurate and reliable. Those who fall into sin are indeed subject to judgment. God will judge the wicked, and the law details the ways in which every one of us is, in fact, a lawbreaker. And if God is just, which He is, and if we are sinners, which we are, then our desperate need for God to intervene into our lives and to redeem us becomes all the more clear when we try and fail to keep the law. Try and fail to keep the law. Again and again we fall short. And it proves to us, our failure does, proves to us again and again and again that if this is going to turn out well, it's going to take God reaching down into our mess and redeeming us himself. As we progress through our passage here in Galatians chapter 3, verse 21 asks the question, is the law contrary to the promises of God? Just what is the nature and standing of this law? Is it contrary to the promises of God? Considering that the law is a curse to us, should we see it as opposed to the will of God? Especially when we take stock of the fact that God desires man to be saved, right? God wills to save us. And in the context of the Abrahamic covenant, it was his will, he expressed a desire to bless all the nations of the world through Abraham, through this covenant. With that in mind, should we see the law and grace as rivals? Are they battling one another? Each one trying to prevail and win the hearts of man. Should we understand the law as a threat to the promise that God must somehow overcome this threat and defend his chosen people from the law. Is that the way we should see it? Should we see the law as a corruption of Abraham's covenant? Almost as if you have this great big promise and then you read the fine print and all those promises are not really promises because there's all this extra stipulation. Is that what the law is doing? Is it corrupting the promise of Abraham? Paul leaves no room for misinterpretation here. He says, certainly not. Certainly not. There is no shadow of doubt in the mind of Paul, and there should be no shadow of doubt in our minds, that the law is somehow the enemy of the Christian, the enemy of Christ. We cannot misunderstand the law as some villainous problem, even though apart from grace, it is our condemnation. Do not forget how God's perfect word describes the law itself. Whenever we are wondering about a certain passage's interpretation, the best thing that we can do is go to other parts of the scripture that more clearly describe to us the way we should think and the way we should feel about something. And so I want to take us back to a passage of scripture that was, uh, that was a place we camped out for about four or five months. We took a little break from the book of Luke two years ago and we studied Psalm 119. One psalm, the longest chapter in the Bible. Do you remember that? And 119 has this great theme to it. It is organized in an acrostic. 
Each section of the song starts with a letter successively of the Hebrew alphabet. And that letter begins to expound on and describe in great detail the beauty of God's word, his scripture, his law, his command. And so let's look at Psalm 119 and see how God describes the law himself. It says in verses 5 through 6 of that beautiful psalm, Oh, that my ways may be steadfast in keeping your statutes. Then I shall not be put to shame, having my eyes fixed on all your commandments. This writer of the Psalms understands that the statutes are important to him, even though he cannot keep all of them. By looking at the statutes of God, by paying close attention to them, he avoids being put to shame. He has fixed his eyes on the things that God wants. God describes the things that he wants from us in his commands. Verse 24, your testimonies are my delight. They're not my burden. They're not my condemnation. They are my delight. They are my counselors. When we pay attention to the law of God, when it gives us wisdom and keeps us from corrupting our own relationships, from ruining our lives, we are blessed by the law. It can protect us. It can provide shelter for us rather than being a burden for us if we see it the right way. Psalm 119, verse 29. Put false ways far from me and graciously teach me your law. We need to be taught this law by God and it is an act of grace that he would give us the truth that we would not just wander through life not knowing that the things that we're doing are offensive to God. Much, much like that doctor who tells me I have something wrong with me is being gracious in doing so even though I might want to punch him in the face. Even though I don't want to hear that I'm sick. I don't want to hear that I have to go through terrible, terrible treatments. I am grateful that he is honest because there's, there's no hope in me being healed unless I know what I'm up against. So this law is gracious. Psalm 119, verse 37. Turn my eyes from looking at worthless things and give me life in your ways. Give me life in your ways. The law is not here to kill us. The law describes the life God wants for us. A law of truth, a law of respect, a law of gentleness and patience, a law of consideration to others. Verses 126 and 127. It is time for the Lord to act, for your law has been broken. Therefore, I love your commandments above gold, above fine gold. Do you see the positive light that God casts on his own law in this psalm? How can we see the law as a corruption if the words of God himself describe it in such glowing and affirming terms? The psalms are not lying to us. The man who sings them is not deceived. God's law is something positive to us if we have faith in the Lord. Verse 22 of Galatians 3 describes the law's function in a very interesting way. And perhaps perhaps our understanding of this term might sway us into being negative towards the law. It says in verse 22, But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. The law imprisoned everything under sin. Though it is beautiful, though it is something we should pursue, it also can condemn the wicked heart. The scripture imprisoned everything under sin, but it did not do so wrongfully, friends. It gave lines that we ought not cross, and it instituted harsh penalties for crossing those lines. Because when it all boils down to it, 
And this is something we can't walk out of here without understanding here this morning. The God who created us is a holy and righteous God. He is a God of truth and a God of goodness. He is the I am. That means he is the self-sustaining one and he doesn't become something he is not already. So a God who loves what is true and is good cannot tolerate a corruption of what he is. He must stand opposed to sin. He has to judge that which is evil and wicked. The law is not contrary to the promises of God. It is contrary to the sinners who don't treat God with honor like he deserves to be treated. Through Abraham, Israel was given great promises. But God must remain God. The perfect nature that ensured Abraham that those promises would be kept, that his promised offspring would come to pass and that he would bless the nations through that offspring, they were sure promises because God doesn't change. He doesn't compromise. Those are the same types of God's nature, the same aspects of his nature that made it absolutely necessary that God do something about our sin, that he must legally punish it and put it to death. So the law was not a mistake, my friends. It was not a corruption. It was given by God through mediators to show us exactly what was at stake. The law made it crystal clear that salvation could not come to them apart from the divine intervention of God. So the law is not contrary to the promises of God unless we make it something it is not. Unless we try to pretend that it is some means that we might save ourselves. That's when the law becomes our curse. That's when the law becomes a burden to us. I love America. One of the things I love about America is there's no shortage of weird people here. And if you drive across this great country of ours, from time to time you'll come upon a, a roadside attraction, something just off the wall that you can stop and visit and see, wow, there's some different people in this world that think differently. We were driving to Arkansas one time in our van, and, and uh, Missy said, pull over here. We're like in the middle of cornfields. Like, what are we doing here? We pulled over. We got the kids out. And you wouldn't know anything was there. It wasn't like a giant sign or anything. There was just a cut in the corn. And uh, we walked through that cut, and there were people coming out, people going in. And then you get to this clearing, and there's like eight or nine classic 50s Cadillacs, nose down in the ground, psh, psh, like this, just like this giant, weird, artistic monument. And the guy who owns this field called Cadillac Ranch invites anybody who wants to come in to paint these cars over and over again. So they have dozens of layers of paint on them, and artists will come from all over to paint one of the Cadillacs and to redo, and it's just constantly changing. People are weird. <laughs> we got out and we went and saw it. I think that makes us weird, right? One of the strangest roadside attractions that I've, I've ever seen is and I haven't really even seen this. I've always wanted to go. I've never made it. My car always breaks down. It's in the deserts of Southern California. And it's this place that a man who retired from military service had some money, and he decided he just wanted to do things his way. So he bought a desert. You do a lot of things in the desert nobody notices, right? He bought a desert. And he decided that his desert was going to be the center of the universe. This is a big thinking guy. And so uh, he built a pyramid not very big, but it's a pretty little pyramid. And if you go into that pyramid, you can walk in and there's a, there's a big metal plate with an engraving all over it. And there's a little dot in the middle of that plate. You can put your toe on that dot and he'll take a picture of you and sign something as the mayor of his little town saying that you have stood in the center of the universe. 
Weird guy, right? Okay, interesting guy, weird guy. One of the things he has on his property is all these different weird attractions you can go and check out. One of them is a set of stairs from the Eiffel Tower. A giant steel spiral staircase that goes up and up to nothing. <laughs> to nothing at all. And you can go to the center of the universe, and after you've touched the center of the universe, you can climb stairs to nothing. And uh, walking up those stairs must feel a little futile, I would think. In some ways, those stairs, whenever I see a picture of them, I always think, that's kind of the heart of man. That is man trying to get to God on his own power. It doesn't matter how big you make your staircase. Your efforts are not going to get you any closer to heaven. It leads you to disappointment. It leads you to nothingness. We cannot get ourselves to God through the law. And it is only when we see the law as this means of our salvation or this means to justify ourselves and to prop up our egos that the law becomes this curse and this burden to us. Let us return to our original question then, friends. What good is the law? If the law is not to be thrown away, if it is not an enemy of God, then what good is the law? The answer that Paul gives here in chapter 3 of Galatians is not what we would call a comprehensive answer. It doesn't tell us every reason why the law is good. It only relays a part of the story, the part that applies to the argument Paul is working on in that moment. But if we were to take this section of Scripture in Galatians and just only think about the law from that perspective, we'd be missing a lot of what God has in store for us in the law. So we want, we want to look beyond it. Uh, the great reformer John Calvin wrote commentaries on most of Scripture. And in dealing with this particular passage in Galatians chapter 3, he says, The law has many uses, but the Apostle Paul confines himself to one which serves his present purpose. But this definition of the law is not complete, and those who acknowledge nothing else in the law are wrong. So we have to ask ourselves, what more is there to this picture of the law? There's a lot of great commentaries out there on Galatians. I've been reading some great ones. Uh, Philip Ryken probably has written my favorite one. It's in the REC. And then there's a guy named Timothy George who does some great technical work in the New American Commentary. Leon Morris is a, is a favorite of mine, and he writes uh, a book called Paul's Charter of Christian Freedom, which has been helpful as I've been preparing to preach each Sunday for you. But the best commentary on Galatians, you know which one it is? Romans. Romans is the best commentary on Galatians. The Scripture is our most faithful interpreter of Scripture. And so when you look at Romans, which was written approximately seven years after Galatians, Paul has taken this kernel, this idea that he developed in Galatia, and he has expanded upon it. So to understand the law better, we go over to Romans and we see some of the Scriptures that describes the use and the purpose of the law there in Romans. And that's what I'd like to do as we close out here today. In the book of Romans, Paul describes how the law provided, and to some degree still provides us three very important functions. We're going to look at them each one at a time. First of all, God's law acts as a shield to us, as a shield, providing a limited measure of justice and accountability to the law that we are to the world that we all share together. It is a shield. Now, this is sometimes referred to as the civil use of the law. It prevents us from falling apart as a society. The wickedness that I described in Genesis 6, right before Noah builds an ark and God floods the world and hits the reset button, that wickedness is still in us. It is still around us. We are still capable of doing terrible 
and wicked things. And, and don't just take my word for it. Let's go to that argument in Romans, right? Chapter 3, I want to read to you a passage where the Apostle Paul builds an argument for how we should see the heart of man. And he goes to various passages in the Old Testament to build this argument. It doesn't just come out of thin air. He says, listen, these are things that all you Jewish believers, at least, have believed for a long time. Let me put it all in one place for you. Romans chapter 3, verses 10 through 18. As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. This is hard stuff, right? If you're seeing this as a description from Scripture of what human beings are like, this is a mirror, isn't it? Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Oh, the weight of humanity upon us. That we are so sinful naturally in our hearts. This is the state of what we are naturally. We don't just do good things until our circumstances hurt us and then we respond with wickedness. We want to do selfishness. We want to live according to our own will instead of God's. And this shows us, this state of our heart shows us that we need to be governed. There needs to be something keeping us in check or else we're going to burn this world to the ground. Psalm 119 again, verse 52 says, When I think of your rules from old, I take comfort, O Lord. Why? Because those rules keep me from being as bad as I could be. These rules, the law, can be a comfort to us because they help to provide a measure of order and a standard by which the wicked are rightfully judged. Even those who do not yet have salvation benefit from the law of God, which has filtered its way into many different civil sets of law that man has put together, hasn't it? We see evidence of this in Romans chapter 13, where Paul is teaching us how to deal with the governing authorities that are over us, no matter where we're at. This says, For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority, your president or your Congress or your police departments? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. Now, this isn't to say that governments are always doing the right thing. In fact, there is no end of examples of how governments fail to keep even their own laws, the laws that they have put into effect, right? If there were perfect governments, we'd probably stop looking to God for relief and comfort. So I don't think God wants to let there be a utopia in the world. Not that we could achieve it. But we do see the evidence all around us that the law gives us some semblance of protection. It helps us to not be as terribly wicked as we want to be. Even when the law is being administered by people who do not trust Jesus yet, it can still make a positive impact. It can't redeem us, but it can restrain us. It can hold us back from doing those things which would get us into serious trouble. So it acts as a shield. Secondly, the law creates an awareness of sin by acting as an, a mirror to us, reflecting back to us the true picture of who we are. The law cannot be our excuse. It can't be our scapegoat. 
For it does not cause us to sin. It simply condemns the sin that exists within us. Like a mirror is designed to do, it shows us a clear picture of what we really look like. Romans, again, is beneficial to us here in chapter 3 this time. Verse 20. For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. Since through the law comes what? The knowledge of sin. We learn just how bad the situation is by looking at the law of God and see how many ways we fall through, how we can't carry on the law. In Romans 7, 7, Paul's describing, even as a believer, how he struggles to do the righteous things he wants to do. And he says, what then shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. So Paul's describing here how the law has taught him in so many ways he falls short. Sometimes we think we're doing great for the Lord and we step back and we realize when we actually read the scripture, that's not how God wants to be worshipped. That's not the gift God wants you to give to him. Even our attempts at holiness fall short of the glory of God. Martin Luther, the, the great reformer, I've been looking at the reformers a lot lately because we just had the 501st anniversary of the Protestant Reformation. Martin Luther was reflecting on Luke chapter 8, the parable of the soils, where there are four different soils described and the seed, the gospel truth, is cast onto each of those kinds of soil. What does it do in each of those soils? And Martin Luther confesses in his writings that his heart as a monk, as one who was trying to be trained as a servant of God, his heart was like that rocky soil, that deeply deeply packed path where the, the seed would just wither and die without ever even taking root because he was so hardened to the things of God. And he said it remained that way until 10 sharp plowshares broke up the soil of his heart and broke that dirt up and crumbled it so that it might become soft so that the seed of the gospel might take root. Do you know what those 10 plowshares were? The 10 commandments. The law of God which when he seriously meditated on them, he realized that though he thought he had kept them his whole life, he saw that he was falling short of each of them. That he did have idols in his heart over God. That he was not always truthful the way that he should be. That he coveted things that other people have. And that horrible feeling of shame, that feeling of, of, of brokenheartedness made him soft to receive the gospel, which would eventually justify him through faith, not through works. The law is useful because it causes us to see just how lost we are. And it makes us to understand our great need for redemption. In the non-believer, this can work in cooperation with the Holy Spirit to spark repentance and trust in Jesus. And in the heart of the believer, it can cause us to desire a greater sanctification. It can help us to see how much we must cling to the cross of Christ because it is only in His great and holy work that we can overcome this burden of sin that otherwise is like a weight tied to our neck. The law of God is like a shield. It is like a mirror reflecting our sinfulness back to us, but it is also like a light. A light that illuminates a darkened place, revealing to us what is pleasing to God, what is holy, what is acceptable. God is our justifier. But in order to be qualified to be the justifier, God's got to be just himself, right? He's got to do what is right. And he always does. He has to be a God who cares about the truth. 
and follows every rule that He puts upon His people. Romans chapter 3 again, verse 21 and 22. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. And He's talking about Jesus there. That when Jesus came and took on flesh, He made manifest, He made material the perfection of the law. He was walking holiness before us. But then it goes on to say, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. So Jesus is the proper manifestation of the law. The prophets and the law, though, point to that manifestation. They teach us about Christ. They teach us about holiness. They show us how Christ is the fulfillment of the law. And that is why when Jesus appeared in disguise to the two travelers on the road to Emmaus, he preached Jesus to them from the law and from the prophets because they all point forward to Jesus Christ. They bear witness to the righteousness of God and the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ is for all who believe. Jesus was that perfect manifestation. And yet these laws, the written code, points ever to Jesus Christ and should turn our attention to the fact that only He was able and capable of living this law the way that it was designed to be lived. The laws of God are not foreign to His own behavior. Just as the Savior tells us to be servants, and then he himself washes the feet of his own disciples. The laws are a reflection of his love. They show us how to care for one another. They bring us low and teach us the face of God. Psalm 119.68 You are good and do good, O God. Teach me your statutes. So if you want to know who God is like, then start examining the, the law of God. See what is important to Him. See that He doesn't tolerate lies and deception. See that He cares for the orphan and the widow. Take note of the fact that He is merciful and long-suffering, but also realize that He is a God who cannot tolerate sin forever, that He is a God who will justly and rightly put sin to death one day. Should we neglect the law of God my friends, I am afraid that we will begin to forget the face of our own Father. We would not know who God really is like. And sadly, in churches around America, you can go and hear positive and encouraging messages, but you don't really see God because the focus is on people. It's on action and activity, and it's on, essentially, a cleaned-up version of the law. But our mind must be always on the God from whom the law is derived. God himself is what we worship and adore and trust in. John 14, 15 says, If you love me, this is Jesus speaking, you will keep my commandments. So we cannot fool ourselves into thinking that the commandments are this curse that has now been defeated and we can just throw it away. We don't ever have to look at it again. We don't have to think about it or it doesn't have any bearing on our actions today. That's not the case. Friends, we have been commissioned as a church to go and make disciples of the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and what? Teaching them to obey all that He has commanded. That obedience doesn't save. That obedience flows out of our salvation. So let us not throw out the law. Let us not despise the law. The only reason we should despise the law is if we are still trying to use it to save ourselves in which case it should be frustrating to us. It should be the last thing we want to see because you can never keep it perfectly. Only Christ can and only Christ has. We are getting near to Christmas and some of you have been blessed to uh, experience Christmas in the presence of three-year-olds. 
I love three-year-olds. They're just such a mess. They're so cute still, which is necessary, because if they weren't, they'd be in big trouble. I mean, if babies were ugly, man, it's a good thing they're all super cute, right? But if you've ever watched a three-year-old child at Christmas, maybe you've done this, where you thought about that kid, he's the apple of your eyes, and you went out and you went to the store and you bought the coolest present you could think of for that child, right? You bought something that has bells and whistles, and there's so many different features. He's gonna, this is going to keep him busy for months. They're going to burn so many batteries up with this thing, you don't even know, right? And then you wrap it up and you give it to the kid. And on Christmas, he opens it, and there's so much excitement. And you're, at first, you're really excited to give it to him. And then you're a little bit frustrated because that three-year-old wants to play with the box. He doesn't even care about the toy you got. He's just in the box, and he's playing with the wrapping paper, and he's got the ribbon wrapped around his head. And he just wants the box. The box was free. The box was nothing, and he wants the box. The box was just supposed to deliver the present. He wants the box. Christians are so often like that, where we have been given such great a gift in Christ Jesus. And it was brought to us, our attention was brought to our need for it through the box, through the delivery system of the law, where we saw, wow, I can't save myself, I need something greater. And then you open it up and God's had this in plan the whole time. His son's going to save us. He's going to be righteous. He's going to overcome. He's going to fulfill. And yet we get so caught up that all we can think about is rules and regulations and being better than Susie and Joe. Now that child who just foolishly, ignorantly rolling around with that box, he's having a good old time. You don't have to throw the box away. In fact, it's good to keep the box. Sometimes you have a present and you or a gift, you try to use it, you don't know how. And unfortunately, you threw the box away, and the instructions were in the box, right? And so you're trying to get this thing to work, and it doesn't work. Let's keep the box. Let's think about the box. Let's use the instructions that are in the box. They're for our benefit. It's not the point of the prize. It's not a point of the present. But it's good for us. It's a blessing to our hearts. The box is not the gift, but there might be something in there for you. So church, let us not take the law of God the wrong way. Let us not treat it as it never was intended to be treated. Instead, let us rejoice in the victory we have in grace. Let us be grateful for this law and see it as beautiful as Psalm 119 portrays to us in such artistic beauty, that this is a law that we can be grateful for. It's a law that we can teach to our children so long as they know that there is only one who can truly keep it, and it is the one who has won victory for us, Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Let's lift him up as we close in prayer.